0: Welcome to the Government Services Chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians podcast. GSASEP represents emergency physicians who work in the federal government, including active duty military, National Guard, and military reserves, as well as the Veterans Administration, Indian Health Service, and other federal agencies. Our mission is advancing emergency care for America's heroes. In this podcast, we bring you lectures and conversations with leaders in federal emergency medicine to help you better care for your patients and lead your departments. The views expressed on this podcast are personal views and do not represent the views of the Department of Defense, any branch of the military, or the federal government, and they do not constitute
1: endorsement of any product by any of these entities. Hi, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Kristen Sylvia, Chief of Bioastronautics, at the 45th Operations Group Detachment 3 down at Patrick Space Force Base, part of the Human Space Flight Support Office. I'm gonna be talking to you today about space physiology and the deconditioned astronaut. Just a little bit about my background. I am an emergency medicine physician, graduated from residency in 2006 down in San Antonio. The objectives we're gonna cover today include understanding the DOD HSFS mission, Understanding the effects of microgravity on the human body and the different organ systems, recognizing some normal signs and symptoms that are associated with spaceflight, some treatment considerations that are u- unique to patients exposed to spaceflight, and a few historical space flight medical events. The DOD Human Space Flight Support Office, or Detachment Three, is the office of primary responsibility to carry out commander US Spacecom assigned responsibilities for HSFS operations. Our office was established in 1959, was originally called the Department of Defense Mercury Support, and then DOD Man Spaceflight Support Office, or DDMS. Our name was changed to Human Spaceflight Support, but our mission has remained the same. We currently have about 30 personnel assigned who specialize in rescue recovery and retrieval. They include US Navy surface warfare and salvage divers, Air Force fixed and rotary wing rescue specialists, guardian angels, including pararescue and combat rescue officers, fire rescue that are our HAZMAT experts, C-17 or US transcom experts, as well as aerospace and space medicine physicians. The picture on the bottom right shows Demo Mission 2 upon landing. That is the first SpaceX capsule that was manned that went up with two astronauts. The physician that you see on the left of that picture is Anil Menon. He is the SpaceX medical director and also my IMA. We support three programs with four capsules, including the Soyuz, which is really a Russian ISS taxi service. The US pays about $84 million per seat on the Soyuz. The support we offer is AE and CCAT only upon landing. The commercial crew program consists of both SpaceX and Boeing, and this is a commercial ISS taxi service. The support we offer is contingency rescue as well as medevac upon launch. The Artemis program is NASA's deep space program going to the moon and eventually Mars. Our support is everything from nominal recovery, contingency rescue, capsule retrieval and salvage, as well as medevac. we are currently focused on rescue with commercial crew program but Artemis is going to be starting up soon. We hopefully will have our first launch this year and our first crew mission will be either this year or next. When we stand up our task force 45 we are in multiple locations throughout the United States including teams out at Joint uh, Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam Joint Base Charleston, as well as Patrick Space Force Base. At Patrick, we stand up our support operations center. And we also have a member at Johnson Space Center in Houston that works in mission control. We also have members in Colorado and California. When we were looking at medical training, supplies, and equipment that were needed for a mission, we used a medical model to identify possible medical medical conditions and treatments, as well as protocols. This is a sample emergency medical conditions model that we use to ensure that we considered as many possible events and associated medical and traumatic conditions that we could expect to see. When you break out the spacecraft failure, we take each system or injury and further break that down to look at what response or treatment can we reasonably provide knowing that our pararescue teams will be out in the open ocean. Not on this list is blood. We do carry two units of low titer or whole blood per astronaut for both launch and landing. This is a picture of our medical assemblage. This is for one location. For Charleston and Hickam, we have four astronaut March bags, which is really a 60 minute bag. It has everything they'll need for the first 60 minutes of care. They'll have blood boxes with the two units each, backboards, O2 kits, prolonged field care bags, and those uh, also contain our uh, controlled medications as well as our defibrillator and our vents. We use a SAVE2 vent as well as the CMAC. and for monitoring, we use the Athena, which is a wireless monitor that does heart rate, blood pressure, O2, CO2, as well as three-lead EKG. those athenas can be transmitted directly to a uh, smartphone or a a tablet. We do carry supplies and medications for four critically ill or injured crew members for up to 72 hours. That includes four vents and all the medications that we would need for sedation for that time. At Patrick, we also have advanced life support kits, which includes the MDs and a couple other things in the helos. This is a picture of all of our rescue equipment at Cape Canaveral Space Station. This was before we moved our equipment forward to Hawaii and Charleston. And it consists of uh, hard ducks and arcs, also known as jet skis. All of it is packed for airdrop with the parachutes attached. Our survival bundles are among this as well. All right, on to the human response to space flight. So astronauts experience a spectrum of adaptations in flight and post-flight, collectively known as space adaptation syndrome. The neurovestibular system provides our sense of balance, position, and motion, but the inputs are come to us uh, via gravity. And once we are in a weightless environment, those inputs are immediately and radically altered. These lead to essential sensory conflict. We do still have uh, rotational motion because that works independent from gravity. They do eventually adapt to a position sense and motion, but the initial adaptation can cause some space, space motion sickness. Upon returning to Earth, they're still adapted to microgravity, and that causes the readaptation syndrome. So about 70% of all crew members are affected by space space motion sickness, and about 10% 10 of cases are severe or debilitating. Symptoms are anything from vertigo, unstable gait, and nausea and vomiting, which can be very difficult to control initially. Time course, the onset is anywhere from main engine cutoff, MECO, which is a few minutes after liftoff, up to 24 hours. Peak of symptoms is anywhere from 24 to 48 hours, and the symptoms usually resolve at 72 to 96 hours. Uh, medication pre- and uh, pre-flight training are the best treatments for this. Once they return to Earth, almost all crew members are affected to some degree by readaptation syndrome. They may have difficulty walking around corners, feeling that they're falling to the side and the earth is coming up to towards them and feeling that they're pushing their ground away as opposed to them walking. They are having to push the the earth away. Some of the symptoms include vertigo with unidirectional nystagmus, unstable gait, and uh, severe nausea and vomiting. This can last anywhere from landing up to 72 hours after. Sometimes it lasts longer than that. Treatment is avoiding rapid head movements and progressive increase in activity and any of the combination of medications. Our initial dose of Phenergan is about half of the normal dose. This is a video of an astronaut 24 hours after landing, after being on the ISS for six months. And you can see he's requiring assistance with ambulation and is very unsteady. And if we can go forward from this video, there we go. All right. This is a basic graphic of our cardiovascular system. A is what we look like on Earth. The gravity is exerting a downward force, which sets up a vertical hydrostatic gradient. When we're standing, some of this excess fluid resides in the vessels and tissues of the legs. B, we have uh, initially once in space, we have a loss of the hydrostatic gradient. The fluid redistributes to the head and chest, causing some congestion, uh, almost feeling like they have uh, sinus infection or uh, seasonal allergies. This increase in cardiac return is senses the overload of circulating blood volume. And C is once the body starts adjusting by reducing the plasma volume 12 to 15% during early flight with a loss of one to two liters. Whole body volume normalizes later in flight. And then there's also a total red blood cell uh, deregulation downward to maintain the normal concentration or a relative anemia. D is once we're back on Earth and gravity again pulls the fluid downwards. There's a low peripheral resistance because that was downregulated during flight. And there's a, a relative intravascular deficit. Now there are about two to three liters Down in both circulating fluid and red blood cells. All crew members are affected to some degree, and the signs and symptoms would be the same as you would expect in somebody with severe dehydration, including orthostatic intolerance and syncope, decreased blood pressure, increased heart rate, weakness, malaise, nausea, and they also have increased heat stress due to their pressure suit. And this can go anywhere from landing up to a few days. The treatment is pre-landing an oral fluid and salt loading protocol. This regains about 6% of their plasma volume. They also wear lower extremity tension garments and are in a reclined position in the space capsule. Post-landing, they're giving oral fluids if they tolerate them, or IV bolus and the nausea is treated. They're also uh, rest will help. And with any kind of trauma, they may need blood sooner than stage three shock. In 2018, there was a cohort study of 11 ISS crew members looking at internal jugular blood flow, and they found that six of these crew members demonstrated stagnant or retrograde flow in the IJ on approximately flight day 50 out of 132. One of these crew members developed a completely occlusive clot in the IJ during spaceflight. This is the first known blood clot in microgravity, and although the etiology is unknown. Uh, they believe it may be from the harness that's worn to keep the crew member on the treadmill when they're exercising. There is 40 days of an anticoagulant on ISS, which this astronaut was started on. There is no reversal on the ISS. And oral medication was sent with a resupply, and that was held uh, launch, may, launch day minus four. There is a theoretical risk of PEs and strokes. We have not seen those on any astronaut's up uh, to this point, but it's certainly a possibility. The weightless environment also causes a relentless atrophy of of bone and muscle tissue. The bones don't have to carry weight and the muscles don't have to work against the pull of gravity. The bone can atrophy 1.3 to 2% a month, uh, decrease in bone density, and most of this is mitigated by exercise. There is an increased risk of kidney stones secondary to calcium excretion, but that risk is greatest in the six to 12 month post landing period. The muscles can atrophy t- 10 to 20% on short missions, and that may be as high as 50% on longer missions without exercise. Peak power decreases by 30 to 35%. There's also a two to six centimeter increase in spinal length. And all of this affects mostly the weight-bearing regions, including the lumbar spine, pelvic girdle, and the legs. And the countermeasures on the ISS are good, but not a complete solution. All crew members are affected to some degree. And we see weakness, fatigue, and poor coordination, also impaired physical ability, unable to extricate themselves from the capsule, is a risk of long bone fractures and herniated disc or spine injuries, as well as pelvic fractures. Time course symptoms are usually worse early on and improve over time, and they require assisted ambulation and rest and a 40, 45 day guided rehab program. Urinary retention has occurred both during spaceflight and on landing. Some of the factors are obstructive which females are four times more likely than males in spaceflight to have uh, obstructive urinary retention, whereas males are more likely than females on landing day. If they have retention, their risk of UTIs is increased by 25 times. Treatment, of course, is a urinary catheter, which also will increase their risk of uh, UTI as well. The ocular system is affected something called spaceflight-associated neuroocular sy- syndrome, or SANS. They found that 22 of 31 astronauts developed some or all of these findings either during or following a six-month spaceflight, including optic disc edema, cotton wool spots, a decrease in their near vision, choroidal uh, folds, optic nerve sheath distension and kinking, as well as globe flattening. They have found that they have an increase in CSF pressure post-fight as well. They believe it's due to the fluid shifting towards the head, which is causing the increased intracranial pressure, and that's transmitted to the optic nerve, uh, to the globe. As you see the uh, top MRI picture, you can see the kinking of the optic nerve, and the bottom pictures show the globe flattening. Uh, post-flight compared to the pre-flight MRI. About 60% of the crew members have at least one sign of SANS, and the symptom that they're looking for is a decrease in near vision, and this can last from the time they're in space up to years post-landing, and there is no treatment in the field. So in summary, almost every organ system is affected by microgravity, there's a couple that we didn't discuss. Psychologic is one of them, uh, but these astronauts and crew members are rigorously selected and tested and trained, and they train with the same people, but they are also in a closed environment, and uh, the risk of uh, skin infections and other infections is increased as well. Not every astronaut is affected the same way. This is a Soyuz landing in Kazakhstan, so our first crew member that comes out is a Russian cosmonaut, and as you can see, he's slightly ashen and is not turning his head, is not helping at all with his extrication, and does not look like he is having a good day. And hopefully, we can get our video going again. All right. Well, we can't, but we'll go on to uh, some historical medical events in spaceflight. First one we'll talk about is a pad abort for Soyuz T 10 1. This one, the rocket caught fire on the pad. The launch escape system fired about two seconds before the rocket exploded. The touchdown of the capsule was about two and a half miles downrange, and the crew members were bruised, and uh, but otherwise were in good health, and they did not require any medical att- attention. Once they were greeted by recovery crews, they asked for both cigarettes and vodka. The uh, ascent abort of the Challenger is pretty well known to most of us. It was caused by a failure of an O-ring seal on a solid uh, rocket booster. The breakup of the vehicle began at takeoff plus 73 seconds at an altitude of about 48,000 feet, or about 18 miles downrange. The cabin hit the surface about two minutes and 45 seconds after the breakup, and they think that the crew was still alive upon impact. There was an ascent abort for a Soyuz 18A, and this was takeoff plus 295 seconds due to a separation failure causing the capsule to deviate off course the cosmonauts experienced up to 21 G's and they landed successfully about a thousand miles downrange they landed on this snow-covered slope and the capsule began to roll downwards uh, towards a cliff and the parachute snagged on some vegetation and kept them from rolling off the cliff they were in chest deep snow with a temperature of about 19 degrees Fahrenheit And because of the snow and the high altitude, they were not rescued for about 24 hours. And the ballistic reentry of Gemini. So this flight was aborted after six orbits due to tumbling. It splashed down about 500 miles east of Okinawa. The PJs that are pictured in the bottom uh, right are Glenn Moore, Eldridge Neal, and Larry Hewitt. And those uh, PJs jumped to the capsule that we see on that top picture. They were recovered by the USS Leonard Mason within three hours, and all five of them suffered seasickness. And they were on the Ed Sullivan Show after. I know most of you probably don't know what the Ed Sullivan Show is, but it was a very popular talk show way back in the day. There was a rapid decompression of Soyuz 11, and this was a nominal or normal re-entry of the capsule landed safely under canopy and there was no signs of damage. When the recovery teams uh, opened up the capsule, they found all men in their seats, motionless, dark blue patches on their faces and trails of blood from their noses and ears. It seems that a air vent was jerked open during the separation of the orbital and descent modules and that caused a rapid decompression at an altitude of about 104 miles or 55,000 feet. A death occurred in less than two minutes. And after that, uh, pressurized suits were worn during launch and landing. There is videos out on the web that show the the rescue crews attempting CPR on those cosmonauts after pulling them from the capsule. All right, and last one we'll go over is other landing medical events. There was a couple of cases of pneumothorax on landing. One was a hard landing on its side, where the crew member had right sided chest pain and some shortness of breath and an increasing dipsnia. He uh, went to surgery for a ruptured diaphragm and a pneumothorax. There was also a couple back injuries on landing. One was a hard landing, about 21 G's, and uh, a seat failure caused that injury. There was also a spinal compression on landing during a ballistic reentry. I'm gonna skip the last couple and our summary. So we went over the HSFS mission and some space physiology, as well as a few of the historical medical events in spaceflight history, which is why we do what we do. And this is a picture of one of the uh, pararescue berets that is floating on the ISS. This is the the cupola with the earth in the background. This was for one of the pararescue men after 30 years when he retired last year. These are some of my references. There's certainly more of them out there, but um, the second to the bottom, Michael Barrett is a current astronaut, also a physician. He wrote the book on uh, the principles of clinical medicine for spaceflight, which is where uh, most of this in- information comes from. And also uh, the very top one, the fundamentals of space medicine. I am going to be available for any questions that you may have, and thank you for listening.
0: GSASEP is proud to be the premier continuing medical education source for military and federal emergency physicians. To purchase CME for the episode you just listened to, please click on the link in the show notes. The Government Services Chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians promotes quality emergency care and enhances the development of emergency physicians who serve our nation from training through retirement. Learn more about our chapter at www.gsacep.org.